This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we continue our verse-by-verse examination of the Gospel of Matthew by dealing with the Sabbath and rabbinical arguments surrounding Torah. These next two episodes, I was reminded why I never have done verse-by-verse, because there are some (laughs) stories that I'm just not as prepared for. So it was always nice to just kind of skip those and go on to the ones where I was really solid. But we've made a commitment to our listeners, dang it. So well, I think we've got plenty to talk about in this episode. Uh, <laughs> this episode titled Donkeys and Rabbis, and boy, that, there's a lot tied up in those two words. I am pretty sure we're going to have plenty to talk about. <laughs> I think maybe when I don't have things to say, I talk even more. So That is probably true. <laughs> I'm noticing that about my son. My son was at the doctor's office. He had to get, we were called by the nurse. They said... Your kids are short, one shot. They need to go get a shot. Okay. Forgot forgot about that, apparently. So I went in to do that, and my son is nervous as I'll get out, and he is just chatty Kathy in the doctor's office. Nervous talker. Must get it from me, apparently. <laughs> All right, Brent, we are in Matthew 12. We're going to do the first half of Matthew 12. I think that's 21 verses we're going to do. How about you, uh, how about you read it's the first eight or so? At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. All right, I'm not even going to let you get eight verses in. We're going to cut that short right there. I was like, that seems pretty ambitious. (laughs) A lot of context swirling around about this. So they're walking through the field on Shabbat, which is totally fine as long as they're, you know, not outside, as long as they're within that mile to two mile radius that was determined in their rabbinical world to be within the t- city limits. They can be walking around as much as they want. Nothing wrong so with that. So really you could do laps around the town on can, the Sabbath as long as you're within a given range? Absolutely. You can uh, walk as long as much as you want. I thought the town. regulation was a total distance kind of regulation. I don't believe so. It was all connected to a journey. You weren't allowed to journey, to travel on the Sabbath, but you were allowed to walk. You weren't allowed to carry. You weren't, but that's actually kind of what we're going to talk about here is you had, um, they're, they're, they're walking through a field on Sabbath, Shabbat, and they're, they're hungry. And so they decide they're going to totally lawful according to Torah, totally lawful according to custom, um, in the Middle East, even today, even in, uh, Muslim countries often, not that I would necessarily want to just assume this wherever I went, be horrible tourists, but Typically in these Middle Eastern countries, if you're in their field, as you can you can take whatever you need or want to eat. Um, you can't take more than that. You can't harvest and take it home. But if you're walking through a field, you can grab some. Walking through a vineyard, grab some grapes. Walking through a field, grab some grapes. So nothing wrong with that. But it is Shabbat. And Shabbat was very uh, tricky in Jesus' day. In Torah directly, uh, Torah really only has, like it speaks of Shabbat quite a bit. We've looked at session one, how important Sabbath is. Torah speaks of Shabbat, but as far as the laws about what you can and can't do on Shabbat, there there aren't as many as you might think. Uh, Basically, they fall into two categories. There's one obscure uh, reference, I believe in the book of Numbers, to you shall not light a fire. So you're not allowed to light a fire on Sabbath. But all the rest of them are essentially do not work. You're not allowed to work. You're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to gather manna. You could say that. You're not allowed to. There's a guy who gathers firewood in the book of Numbers, gets himself uh, stoned to death. Um, There's like. So Sabbath is pretty serious. Sabbath is a pretty serious deal. And that's where this conversation is arising out of. But as far as direct commandments, 
It's not that complicated in Torah. It's pretty simple. And, and and then you could extend it to like indirect commandments. But now now that you're talking about indirect commandments or indirect, uh, or maybe should I say the application of the commandments that are in Torah, that'd be a more appropriate way to say it, the application of those few commandments. As soon as you do that, we're now getting into the work of interpretation. Like how do we interpret these commands? Um, and that's where things got incredibly complicated. And so in the Jewish world, they had oral tradition, or in their world, what they would call halakha. Halakha, it refers to your walk. Halach is to walk. So the halakha is the walk, the walk. It's the, it's the walking out of Torah. Remember how we talked about abolishing and fulfilling. Um, halakha is the rabbinic rulings about this is what it means to fulfill Torah. So you had all this oral tradition. At this point in history, it's not written down. It will not be written down until about a century after Jesus. And I think just under a century after Jesus, they're going to put the Mishnah in place. And it's going to be the first set of oral tradition, canonized, written down, oral tradition. And after after that, you're going to have... So, so Mishnah was about 3,000 commandments. So how many commandments were in Torah, Brent? 613. 613. And out of that 613, you have a handful or two that deal directly with Sabbath. Okay? But now, a little bit later, and we've, we'll talk about this sometimes when we're in class and we have a whiteboard. I'll, I'll draw Torah and I'll put 613 on the board, and then I'll draw a fence around the 613. Because after Babylon, and they learned their lesson after they went to captivity, the Jews came back and they said, well, we don't want to break God's law ever again. And so in an effort to... Um, in an effort to um, make sure that they don't transgress the 613 that God gave, they put their own fence around the 613. And the first fence that they installed formally was the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah is not going to be for another 100 years after Jesus, but the Mishnah is about 3,000 commandments. So we've gone from 613, and then they put a fence of 3,000 around the 613. Then around the, about uh, just under a century later, or maybe just over a century later, about another hundred years later, they decided to add to that fence and put another fence around the fence. So you had the, the Torah, you had the 613, you had a fence, and then you had an outer fence. And that fence, the Talmud, is going to have roughly about 6,000 commands, 6,000 laws and rulings and commandments that they have to follow. 6,000 in addition to Mishnah? That is a good question. I always in my head just assumed another 3,000, but I don't think that's necessarily accurate. I'm trying to think the Talmud does include the Mishnah, but in the commandment count, I don't know if it's an additional 3,000 or additional 6,000 on top of the three. That's a really great question. I never even thought about that before. Nevertheless, you have uh, you have these fences. And I think to the typical Christian reader, we think, oh, you see, that's what's wrong with Judaism. And they're just so legalistic. The legalism is not what's driving them. What's driving them to install these fences around Torah is a true desire to walk obediently and make sure their walk is what what brings honor and is devoted to God. And so that's where this is coming from. Um, you were with me, Brent, in, uh, in Israel when we were in Jerusalem, and you met Moshe, shop owner at Shorshim Shop there in Jerusalem, right? He, um, do you remember the story he told about Oranges and his wife? Oh, yes. His wife is pregnant. She gets a pregnancy craving, middle of the night. I want an orange. So he, he gets up, talks about trudging uphill in the snow, 
which is funny in Jerusalem, but uh, both ways. And uh, goes to the store, gets, gets uh, uh, what does he do, Brent? Does he get an orange? I think he gets 40. I think it's 20. He gets 20. a bag of 20 okay, oranges, 20. right? And he brings this bag of 20 oranges home. And what does she do? Of course, she just does what? She wants the one. She takes one orange. She picks her favorite orange. Is what she do with the other 19? Throws them out. Throws them out. And and Moshe will say, Christians come in all the time and they say, why, why do you engage this legalism? He says, you just had to get your wife one orange. He says, of course I had to get my wife one orange. But it doesn't matter if she threw away the other 19. It's my gift is what he says. He says, my obedience as a Jew following all these oral commands and traditions is not because I'm a legalist. It's because it's my gift. It's my gift to, to Adonai. Adonai says, I want X and I give him X, Y, and Z. It's my gift. I get to choose that. So that's where this heart is coming from. So before we're all quick to, quick to critique it and be critical of it and throw it out, um, we have to understand where the heart is coming from. So when God said, don't work on the Sabbath, they had to decide what that meant. And I think everybody would have agreed. I, I believe Jesus would have said, you can't harvest on the Sabbath. That would be working. I don't think Jesus would have disagreed with that at all. You can't harvest on the Sabbath. If you're, if you're in the middle of harvest season, don't work on the Sabbath. Do not go out and harvest your fields on the Sabbath. But does harvesting mean, see, now we're in the work of interpretation. When Jesus and his disciples are wandering through the field, grabbing heads of grain with their hands, rubbing them in their hands, taking the grains and putting them in their mouth, is that harvesting? Well, much of rabbinical halakha said, yes, you can't engage in that. That's harvest. And I think Jesus says, you are missing the heart of, of the law. You're missing the point of what Sabbath is all about. You're worried about a technicality. And I don't think Jesus is upset because they're worrying about technicalities. He's saying you're worrying about the wrong technicalities. If you want to worry about technicality, that's fine. Just make sure they're the technicalities that God cares about. I don't think Jesus is ever upset that the Pharisees are like nitpicky and care about the details. In fact, at one point in a teaching, he's going to say, and we'll run into this, you tie the tenth of your mint and dill and cumin, and he, he doesn't critique them for that. He just says, you neglect the weightier matters of the law, which is mercy and justice and righteousness and compassion. You should do both, is what Jesus says. You shouldn't reject the one and only do the other. The details are fine. Just make sure you're caring about God's details. And so what's happening here is this Pharisaic worldview is getting very upset because Jesus and his disciples are picking grain and eating it on Shabbat, and they're they're looking at it on a technicality and going, that's harvesting. How dare you work on Sabbath? And I think Jesus has something else to say. So go ahead and keep reading where you left off there, Brent. Just follow up on uh, Talmud Mishnah. It basically seems to be impossible to know. Okay. It's pretty complicated. The uh, Talmud, if you ever get your hands on it, is A, in Hebrew, and B, uh, the size of uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. It is a massive, massive work. You can get it online, by the way. Wonderful uh, site out there called safaria.org. Oh, we can put a link to that. Uh, safaria.org. Um, uh, they're cataloging and trying to translate as much as they can into English uh, all of your Jewish works, Talmud, Mishnah, um, Midrash. It's unbelievable, actually. It's a huge, huge deal. So kudos to them. Shout some, out. Some sources say uh, the Talmud doesn't have any laws. Torah, okay. Torah yeah. is the and law. That, sure, absolutely. Yep. Uh, some people say um, the Torah doesn't have any laws. Those are mitzvot. Right. 
and the Talmud is the laws explaining how to handle the mitzvot. Sure. Yep. So. Yeah. Uh, lots of different ways to look at it. The semantics of rulings, laws, and mitzvot, good deeds, all those things are very particular. And depending on what tradition you're coming from, who your teacher is, it's going to make a difference. So, yeah, absolutely. Complicated issue. Apparently, the current uh, Talmud, though, was sealed in uh, AD 505. So that's, AD 505, that's the final sealing. Yes, was that's correct. Finalized. I believe they put it, they began to canonize it in about two, mid, mid third century, I believe. If I have my dates in my head correct. Mid second century was Mishnah. Mid third century was Talmud. So, moral of the story uh, go learn Hebrew, I guess. Apparently, <laughs> and learn how complex these issues are. It's not just about legalism and the Pharisees, it's much more complicated than that, but. All right, go ahead and pick up where you left off. All right, back to Matthew 12. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, now I think this is important, Brent, because I hear people say this all the time. People that I really respect as great teachers and preachers and bloggers and folks I follow on Twitter. And there are people that I really respect that I've heard them say this multiple times. I've read it in their books. It's so frustrating to me. Um, they'll talk about how how Jesus knew how to forsake the law. Like Jesus knew when to put the law aside. And the assumption there is that Jesus broke Torah. Like there were times when Jesus broke Torah. It is so important from a Jewish perspective <laughs> that we stay away from that nonsense. It is my absolute conviction that Jesus never broke Torah. We say Jesus lived a, sinful, a sinless life. That, that has to mean in his Jewish world that he fulfilled Torah in its completeness. So Jesus never broke, this is so important for me, Jesus never broke a direct commandment of Torah. Jesus never broke the 613, period. Now, we'll talk more about what that means throughout session three, because it's like, okay, but what about this and what about this? Like, we'll, we'll talk about what he's doing. But what Jesus is always doing is he's interpreting Torah correctly. What he's talking about here is not any command. There's no command in Torah about Sabbath that Jesus is breaking here. What he is breaking is tradition. He is commenting and thinking critically about and critiquing culturally the rabbinic tradition that does surround Torah. So did Jesus break halakha? I, I believe he did. I believe he did it very intentionally as a teaching tool to say you're not interpreting Torah correctly because you're all wound up about obedience to the Sabbath and you're forgetting what the Sabbath was for. Because the Sabbath, take me back to Genesis 1 here, session 1, Brent, where it all began for us. The Sabbath is supposed to remind me what? What kind of items? What, what kind of things? Uh, that we have enough. We have enough. That we, what else? That we can rest knowing right. that we're good. Yep, that we can trust the story. That we, uh, what are those things that my, remember my children say? Uh, the Sabbath is we rest, we play, no work, God loves us. Absolutely. Like, that's what the Sabbath is about. He's like, if you're worrying about, if you're if you're getting all wound up because my disciples are rolling grain in the palms of their hand to eat because they're hungry. You are missing the point of we rest, we play, no work. God loves us. Uh, you, you are missing the point. And so, and so Jesus is going to use two examples out of the text 
This is so important to me. <laughs> I don't know why I'm so amped up about this. But I'll hear Christians say all the time that Jesus broke Torah. Like Jesus broke the books of Moses. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He did critique the interpretation of the books of Moses. And I was actually noticing in verse 2 when the Pharisees are uh, pointing this out to him, they don't say that he abolished Torah. Exactly. They said, your disciples are doing what is unlawful. Correct. They're, bra- he's, they're breaking tradition. And they've had they've had the conversation about abolishing and fulfilling Torah previously. So it's Correct. not like, you know, it's not like they're using this language in one place because that's just always how Matthew talks about it or whatever. No, that's not the case. We've had the conversation about Torah before. Now we're just talking about something else. Absolutely. And so Jesus, like a good rabbi, has this conversation by going back to the what, Brent? To the text. To the text. It's always going to be in the text. And so he uses two examples, one from David and then one about the priests. And so I believe you have a passage from First Samuel. Can you give us the address and uh, read us that passage? Because he talks about a story here that's in our Bible. So let's hear the story. It's a weird story, by the way. It's going to throw us because it's not real clean and pretty. It's very human and gray and messy. But we'll go ahead and read the story that Jesus references here. Okay, First Samuel 21. David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. Okay, so uh, if if we've lost the context of this, David is being chased by who, Brent? Saul. Saul. Saul wants to kill him, and Saul is the current the king. The king. And David has been anointed king, but he refuses to take the throne unless God chooses to give it to him. And so he's on the run. He's fleeing for his life. So just to remind ourselves of the context here, because what David just did is he lied to the priest. <laughs> he said, I'm on a secret mission from the king and I'm not supposed to talk about it. So again, we look, we want this to be like really nice and neat and tidy. It's kind of messy. I mean, if he thinks of himself as the king at in that moment, <laughs> I wanted to put like a capital K on the king. Like I'm on a special mission from the king, like the Lord King. But yeah, it's David here is uh, stretching the truth at best to talk about what's going on here. But go ahead and keep reading. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. Okay, so now the priest says, okay, you're looking for bread. I get that. You have a need, like you're on mission from the king. The priest doesn't need to know the context, apparently. It's on a need-to-know basis. But he says, you're on a special mission. You and your men are hungry. I don't have random bread, but what I do have is the bread of the presence. So what bread is that, Brent? At the tabernacle? Yeah, so in the temple, in the tabernacle, they have bread, 12 loaves of bread that sit on the table of showbread the table of the presence. And every day they put fresh loaves on that table. And it's supposed to represent this fellowship, this relationship that God's people have with God. But that table sits in the holy place. It sits inside the temple where only a priest can go. And it's holy bread because it's God's. So this is like a big deal. The priest is like, I don't have bread for you. Not the most holy place. Not the most holy place. Not the holy of holies. But the holy place. the holy place. Only priests are in there. Only priests. And that bread, according to Leviticus and Numbers, can only be eaten by the priests. And he's and this and this priest is saying essentially what the priest is going to say here is feeding the hungry is what the temple is all about. The priest is doing his priestly duty. He's doing it correctly. Ah, this was the episode that we should link, Brent. Uh if we get to link an episode, we should go back and talk about Leviticus and the kingdom of priests. A kingdom of what? Or whatever the title of that. Um 
episode was, our Leviticus episode, because it will remind us of the four roles of priesthood. We talked about how a priest puts God on display. We have a priest helps people navigate their atonement. A priest uh, intercedes on behalf of others. We talked about how a priest uh, distributes resources to the oppressed. Kind of all four of those things the priest is embodying right now. In this gesture, like because this is a big deal, he's talking about the law says, Torah says that David can't eat this bread. Only a priest can eat this bread, and the priest can only eat it at the end, at the end of the day after new bread is cycled onto the table. This is a big deal, and so uh, a kingdom of what? Episode twenty-five is the episode that we're looking at there. Um, but this priest is putting God on display. This priest is helping David navigate his atonement. This priest is interceding on David's behalf. This priest is distributing resources. The priest is essentially saying, if I understand the God that this that lives and that dwells in this temple, this God cares more. Torah is not about keeping the bread holy, but the whole reason we have holy bread is to teach us about who this God is, and this God wants us to feed the hungry. Therefore, the hungry person is more important than the holiness and the consecration of the bread, and he gives them the bread. That priest is making an interpretation of what the law truly desires. And Jesus calls back to it, I don't think applauding David for his line and fibs here, but applauding the priest in this priestly role for interpreting the law correctly and doing the right thing. Because feeding the hungry would be more important than... So how does the passage finish out there, Brent? You got a few more verses? Yeah. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? Okay, so that reference is the priestess wants to make sure you're not unclean, are you? Like you're on this mission from the king. Have you been pillaging and and in battle and taking women? And have you been doing all these things that would make you unfit to eat this bread? Or are you consecrated? And David essentially says, yes, we've been, we haven't been with women. We haven't been in the middle of battle. We are, we are clean. We're able to receive this bread if this is the bread you want to give us. This definitely feels like some Genesis 1 stuff, though. The men's bodies are holy even on missions that are not holy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be a, that'd be a fun little side podcast on that one. Because yeah. there is. There's some connections there that we could talk about. Um, I think David's initial point being even when the king sends us out to do things that are less than desirable, like battle, uh, yet, yet our bodies are holy anyway. So how much more so if we're not in battle? So you're absolutely right. Yeah, there's some good stuff there. So it finishes out. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. So this is the story that Jesus calls back to. He says, you're upset about eating on Sabbath. Don't you remember? Which I love that. It's kind of a backhanded compliment as if the guys, as if the Pharisees that he's talking to don't know their text. Have you forgotten the story about David? He had consecrated bread. Like how much bigger of a deal is that than us picking grain on the, you have to remember what the law is all about, what the weightier parts of the law are. But we'll get to that in just a moment. He uses another example, and that is the example of the priest. Go ahead and read that that verse again, Brent, in Matthew 12. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent. Okay, now you have a passage from Numbers. I believe Numbers, what, 28, 9, and 10? On the Sabbath day, make an offering of two lambs a year old without defect, together with its drink offering and a grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with olive oil. This is the burnt offering for every Sabbath, in addition to the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. Okay, so they offer that offering on what day? 
On the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, every Sabbath. And so Jesus' point is, if we're offering offerings on the Sabbath, well, somebody has to work on the Sabbath. So who is it that has to work on the Sabbath? The priests. The priests. He says, this is the whole job. The job of the priest is to help people understand, see God, make atonement for others. Like you're misinterpreting Torah. It's not about following the rules, the rules of rules of rules. It's not about all your extra fences. Your fences are fantastic if they help you love people. But if they don't help you love people, and if they actually hurt people, if they make people hungry, if they don't allow people to find healing, well, then your rules are actually incredibly problematic. And then that last statement there, read that last statement in that paragraph one more time, Brent. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Which, by the way, he just quoted the Pharisees a few chapters earlier when they were all upset a few podcasts ago about him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. So he's just quoted that verse for a second time to them. Okay. So we've got some Hosea context going on there. Yep. Uh, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And I think... A little Daniel reference there. Well, could Maybe. be, but or I think Ezekiel. this is a good example of a more like Ezekiel usage. So it's not necessarily a reference to Ezekiel, but it's using the term in... See, I don't think there's any reference here or connection to Daniel, like like Abel has a Lord over the Sabbath or Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath. I think what he's saying, in fact, in, in another gospel, he'll talk about how... Um, uh, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I think his point here is the son of man, like just a typical human being. The human being is Lord over Sabbath. You don't, you don't minute, like you don't serve Sabbath. God gave you, like he said, another gospel, God gave Sabbath to you. God didn't make you for the Sabbath. God made the Sabbath for you. Sabbath is your gift. You are not the gift to the Sabbath. Sabbath is your gift to you. So you, as a human being, are Lord over the Sabbath. Now, that's going to not be typical, even today, of Jewish interpretation. Some of it will be typical of Jewish interpretation. But there's going to be a devotion and a commitment, again, not out of legalism, out of devotion and obedience. But I think we need to hear the scandal of our Lord Jesus as he teaches here to say, if you're interpreting your law correctly, it's about other people. So go ahead and read the next verse. I just want to point out, even the, in this case, the NIV translators, they capitalize son of man. Right. Yep. So that's somewhat interpretive. It is somewhat interpretive because that's going to imply that Jesus is the one who's Lord over Sabbath. And I think Jesus' point is you're Lord, you're Lord over Sabbath. Not I'm that Lord Jesus isn't Sabbath. Lord over the Sabbath. Exactly. But because he truly so is. So are we. Yes, exactly. Yep. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Okay. So they're pretty wound up about the Sabbath thing. So they've done a perf- like a... On, on purpose, they have intentionally set Jesus up in synagogue on Sabbath. They bring this guy before Jesus. He's got a shriveled hand. And they're like, okay, we hear you saying that, you know, Sabbath is about people. We're curious. Is it is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Because in their mind, healing's going to be engaging in this creative work, creative work that's prohibited on Sabbath. Now, what we're wandering in here is something we need to introduce in this podcast. And we're only, you know, 25 minutes in. Not a big deal. We're going to introduce a major concept here. And we still have 10 verses to go. But uh, in the world of Jesus, there is always a massive rabbinical debate taking place. There's not just one rabbinical opinion. There never is. The joke is if you have five rabbis in a room, you have eight opinions. Um, 
there is no, there's always a tension, a paradox. Two rabbinical schools throughout all of Jewish history, there will be two rabbinical voices that are arguing back and forth because that argument encapsulates the rabbinical culture and the tension that exists within that rabbinical culture. Always true of Judaism. So you always have a conservative view and a progressive view. You always have somebody leaning right and you always have somebody leaning left. And these rabbinical voices are always held in tension. In Jesus's day, the two rabbinical voices that had defined the conversation were in the generation just preceding Jesus. There was a rabbi by the name of Hillel and a rabbi by the name of Shammai. Hillel and Shammai. Now, Shammai, one of the things that uh, Jesus said not too long ago, Brent, Jesus said, my yoke, my yoke is easy. And we didn't stop at that moment to talk about yokes, but every rabbi had a yoke. His yoke is the lenses through which, through which he interprets Torah. So every rabbi has a set of lenses. And, and I, I can't do this on the podcast because nobody can see a visual, but I have a, I have a pair of glasses. I have, I have glasses. There are two lenses, a right and a left lens. I look through these lenses and they help me see the world. A rabbi looks at text and he has a yoke. A rabbi has a filter that he uses that helps him interpret Torah. That filter is driven by one rabbinical question, which is, what are the greatest commandments? Now, every rabbi throughout all of ancient Jewish history agreed on the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is never up for debate. No matter who you talk to, it's always the same. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. That's your greatest commandment, always. What every, not every, but what rabbis disagreed on was the second greatest commandment. The second greatest commandment defines your lens. It defines your filter. And so to make this conversation as short and sweet as we can, Shammai had a particular yoke. Shammai had a filter. And if he would have gone up to Shammai and said, Shammai, what are the two greatest commandments? He would have said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And his second command was obey the Sabbath. Literally, that was his second greatest commandment. What that meant was, was that Shammai's lens, Shammai's filter, Shammai's yoke was a yoke of obedience. When I look at Torah, what I believe God wants is God wants obedience. Uh, Brent, all the way back in session one, we would talk about Midrash, and we would talk about different threads of Midrash. There's a Midrash that says this. There's a Midrash that says that. Um, There's a Midrash that says uh, Isaac tied his own, uh, when Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac on the mountain, he tied his own bindings and laid himself on the altar. That's the obedience Shammai perspective that talks about faithful obedience. Um, And then there was a Midrash that talked about Isaac um, uh, being so traumatized on the mountain that he has to leave. And that thread of Midrash follows a more Hillel line of thought. It's about relationships and love. If you were to ask Hillel, Hillel, what are the two greatest commandments? He would say, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Sound familiar, Brent? A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. Jesus wades into these rabbinical conversations and takes Hillel's yoke every single time he will agree with Hillel except for one. And that's the topic of divorce. And we'll get to that later. And we'll talk about why, because it's stunning. But Jesus almost always sides with Hillel. Jesus has a Hillel yoke. Jesus didn't come up with it. He didn't create it. That yoke had been around from the generation preceding Jesus. So Jesus waded into this cultural debate and he took a side. 
which matters to us because we're followers of Jesus. So we don't get to disagree. Jesus's yoke is our yoke. If we're a follower of Jesus, we have to have Jesus's yoke. And Jesus said, when I look at the scriptures, I see the scriptures through a lens of love. That's my filter. Not obedience. Obedience still matters. Like if you would have asked Shemai, does love your neighbor make the list? He would have said yes. In fact, I believe it landed at number six on Shemai's list. Love your neighbor was number six. But it defined Shemai's yoke. And if you would have asked Hillel, is obeying the Sabbath important? What do you think he would have said? Absolutely. Absolutely. But why I obey the Sabbath is driven by love. And so what we're talking about when we have these conversations is what they call the weightiness of the law. Which commandment is weightier? Because you're always going to find yourself in a situation where you can't obey two commandments at one time. Um, For instance, uh, we all know the stories of the Holocaust. You're hiding Jews in your attic, right? And the Germans come and they knock on your door. And the Nazis want to know, do you have Jews in your attic? Because we're here to kill them. What's the problem, Brent? I have two laws I have to worry about. Well, should you lie or should you... Kill people. (laughs) Right. Should you be hospitable? Should you protect the life of others? Should you murder? Uh, Whatever you want to call that. Should you lie? And which commandment is weightier? Because whatever you do, you're going to break a commandment. Or that's actually looking at it totally backwards. That would be how we would look at it in our moralistic society, in our moralistic evangelicalism. We would be worried about breaking a command. Jesus would say, don't don't look at it as breaking the command. Look at it as fulfilling the right command. If you choose the right command, you're not breaking any commandment because in fact, you're fulfilling Torah. You're choosing to do, that's what the priest did. When the priest served the consecrated bread to David, The priest was saying, which commandment is weightier, to keep this bread holy or to let somebody go hungry? And the priest chose to take care of people, not care about the holiness and that obedience factor. And in that, Jesus said he interpreted Torah correctly. So when you ask Hillel or Shammai about their yoke, you're asking them, which is weightier? Now, one of the places that this came out in the rabbinic world is they had eight great debates. There were eight great rabbinical debates, eight questions that rabbis argued about to apply their yoke. One of them was the argument about the donkey in a pit on the Sabbath, because there's two commandments. If a donkey falls in the pit, Leviticus says, you have to help your neighbor get it out. The Sabbath or the scripture also says, Leviticus also says, you are not to work on Sabbath. So what do you do, Brent, if your donkey falls in the pit on what? On the Sabbath. On the Sabbath. You now have a conundrum. Do I save the donkey or do I not work? So what? Uh, about pulling a donkey out of a pit is work. Because you're actually going to have to, especially according to rabbinic tradition, you're going to have to exert, like you're going to have to physically work to get this donkey. You're going to have to go get ropes. You're going to have to lift. Remember, like in other stories in the Gospel of John, a, a lame man who was healed can't even carry his mat because carrying and lifting the mat is considered work. How much more is going to be lifting a donkey out of a pit, right? It's a nice calva Omer. I, I know, right? So... So there's definitely this, this uh, um, uh, there's work taking place there. Now, what's so ironic, what you're going to see Jesus do here, in essence, it would help us understand the Shammai debate and Hillel debate. Because donkey in the pit on the Sabbath, ideally, what does Shammai say? Says you can't do it. Don't help the donkey. Obey the Sabbath. If Hillel looks at that same conundrum, what does he say? You absolutely have to do it. You save the life. You save the life of an animal. Even loving animals is going to be better than... 
keep letting it die because of obedience. So you see how the yoke works. Now, ironically, even Shammai figured out how to save the donkey <laughs> because nobody's going to let the donkey die in the pit on the Sabbath. That's just a violation of Torah. So even donkey's Shammai... Donkey's very valuable. Right? What's that? Donkey's very valuable. Very, very valuable. Yeah, it'd be like letting your Lexus roll down a hill because you don't want to put the parking brake on. Um there's definitely so even Shammai even Shammai figured out how to rescue the donkey so everybody was in agreement you rescue the donkey but the debate provided the opportunity to see how the two different worldviews functioned watch what Jesus does with this go ahead and keep reading where you left off he said to them if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will you not take hold of it and lift it out how much more valuable is a person than a sheep Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So remember the context. They've brought in this guy with a shriveled hand to synagogue on Shabbat. They've thrown him in front of Jesus and went, Jesus, can you heal this guy on Sabbath? It's Sabbath, you know. And Jesus says, okay, haven't you guys figured out the whole donkey and sheep in a pit thing? And aren't you all in agreement no matter what side that you fall on? That you're supposed to save the life of the animal? If you're supposed to save the life of an animal, how much more important is this guy's hand and human life and goodness? Like, give me a break, Jesus says. And then I love, it's not Matthew, but one of the other gospels says, he looks around in anger. Like he's, he's righteously angry because of the way that people use religion and the way that people use their hopped up morality to hurt other people. Even in Matthew, it's beautiful how he turns it around because the Pharisees ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus sets up the example and says, therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Yes, absolutely. Yep. It's not just healing. It's what the Sabbath was here for. The Sabbath was here to remind us of goodness. It's the whole reason that Sabbath exists. So, of course, go ahead and keep reading. Read that last little sentence there. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Which I think is a horrible translation, by the way, just in passing. This idea of killing, that word there is incredibly complex. And kill is just one of about 12 different options you have for that word. I don't think the Pharisees are going out to plot how to kill Jesus. I think they're going out to plot how to get rid of him, to destroy him, to undermine him, to to do away with his teaching, to wreck his authority. I think to kill is a pretty arbitrary translation there. I think the Sadducees are going to want to kill him. I'm not so sure about the Pharisees, but just do a typical word search on that. You'll find that that word is far from kill is not option number one on your translation list there. But anyway, it makes sense, I suppose. All right. All right, let's go ahead and finish this out. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. All right. So as we close out this passage, I just wrestle with this quote, direct quotation from Isaiah 42 here. Um, I would just wrestle with this on a Peshat level, surface level reading. Just wrestle with it on Peshat level. Uh, Matthew kind of closes out this section of his story here by saying, on the heels of Jesus doing this Sabbath work and engaging these conversations and healing this guy's shriveled hands, like Jesus is, be- Jesus is showing us the exact kind of leader that Isaiah 42 asked God's people to be. Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah 42. And I love that because he, he, he engages in all these debates. 
things are getting pretty tense. And it says he leaves the place to go, yeah, exact quote here, aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place and a large crowd followed him. And, and Matthew quotes Isaiah, which talks about, he's not going to raise his voice in the streets. Like he causes this ruckus. He's not here to go win a bunch of debates and stand up in the city square of Capernaum and start freaking out and pounding on walls and demanding everybody pay attention to him and promoting his ministry. And he just slips away and keeps bringing peace, keeps bringing wholeness, keeps bringing justice. He's gentle, a bruised reed he shall not break. He's, he's, he's quiet in spirit. He's not here promoting some massive agenda. He tells people to be quiet about stuff. He's just here bringing kingdom. He's here bringing justice. And when people see it, the nations, the nations come looking to him for wisdom. And Isaiah there, that word for justice is of course mishpat. Absolutely. Yep. It's about putting things right and making things right. But that was Peshat, Brent. So what would you, what would you think? Well, we should probably go to Isaiah 42 and see what else it has to say. The Remez is obvious. It's a direct quote. So we can go to Isaiah 42. So it's the first actual four verses of Isaiah 42. So how about you just kind of keep reading past where it's quoted in Matthew so we get a good sense for the context here. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. So this is the context for that quotation coming out of Isaiah 42. And it would seem perfect because he's healing people. And the context there goes on to talk about how he has. Can you find that part about the blind and the lame and the... I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Okay, so there's that quote, which fits the context nicely. As far as Drosh, Brent, I have a bunch of questions that I haven't quite answered yet. Maybe our listeners can help me out at some point. Because there are two references here that tie me back to the story about John the Baptist. Because if you remember, when John the Baptist, just a few podcasts ago, John the Baptist sent a question saying, Jesus, are you the one? Jesus healed a bunch of people. And then Jesus quoted two passages. One of them was this one right here. That's the, that's the, of the two passages that Jesus squishes together, he quotes this one. And we pointed out that he left what quotation out? He doesn't talk about freeing captives. Exactly. And where was John when he quotes this? In prison. In prison and in a dungeon. So this is that quotation. But but just prior to that, there was the. Re- did you catch another reference that Jesus used when he talked about John the Baptist? What did Jesus call John the Baptist when he sent the disciples away and he turned to the crowds and he said, "What did you expect to see when you came out here?" Do you remember? Mm, is that when he's? Oh no, that doesn't make sense. He looked at the crowds and he said, "When you came out to see John, what did you expect to see? Did you expect to see a reed?" Blown by the wind. Mm. And here in Isaiah 42, a bruised reed, he shall not break. I'm wondering if Matthew has tied these two stories together, and I have just yet to find the treasure. Because I find it interesting that reed and the quotation about blind and those in dungeon 
show up in both stories that closely connected. I feel like there's something maybe more going on there, but I don't have any good answers. Well, and this is an interesting, right before the read reference, it says he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. And John was a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a great point. It just keeps getting better. And with that, I'll leave this podcast on an unresolved note because I'm still searching for the drosh. All right. I love it. Uh, if you have any ideas, any other uh, thoughts on this passage, please get in touch with us. You can find Marty on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. Uh, you can also go to baymodiscipleship.com. We've got a contact page there. Uh, check out our map of discussion groups. We're adding more and more groups all the time. If you'd like to start a group, please get in touch. We'll help you out with that. And so with that, thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.